What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi there, I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on Squawk Pod, a journey through regulation nation. First, the deal on everyone's mind, how far the Twitter board is willing to go to accommodate Elon Musk's demands, and how negotiations are affecting shareholders. Former chair of the Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai. This is a you know, very important step forward in terms of Twitter giving information and Musk getting information, but it's certainly not the end of the conversation in terms of the quantum of information that Musk is presumably going to want. Then the SEC's regulatory agenda, eyeing a shift for Robinhood profits by taking on the payment for order flow model. Former SEC Chair Jay Clayton. Regulation is almost always an existential threat to businesses. That's why we do these things in an open and deliberative way. And finally, a look abroad. China's crackdown on big tech may finally be waning, which means an opening for one giant IPO. We're big, we're powerful, we're widespread, we're ant group. Ants are strong. They, <laughs> they are, are pretty strong. For, for their size, they can they, lift they an amazing amount. Okay, all right, you got me there. It's Thursday, June 9th, 2022, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, fuel please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is live in Washington this morning. And Andrew, what brings you to Washington today? Well, I'm going to be uh, here in Washington hosting uh, the DealBook DC um, summit later this afternoon. I'm going to be speaking with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. But after that, we're going to talk to Howard Schultz in his first interview since uh, being um, named CEO or interim CEO of Starbucks. And then I'm going to talk at 5 p.m. with Senator Chris Murphy about gun reform. And we're going to be bringing you all of the highlights from that um, tomorrow morning. So that's what's on tap from here from D.C. But so many other big regulatory issues happening here in D.C. because I know we're going to be talking about payment for order flow and all sorts of other things with a number of guests today and um, lots to lots to discuss. News out this morning, Chinese financial regulators are reportedly considering a, ri- a revival of that giant firm over there, Ant Group, uh, and, an I- and an IPO. Huh? Who thought that? Uh, was that a good idea? We're big. We're powerful. We're widespread. We're Ant Group. Uh, Ants group- are strong. They, <laughs> they are, are pretty strong. For, for their size, they can they, lift they an amazing amount. Okay. All right. You got me there. I do see them carrying like big crumbs. Yeah, bigger than themselves. Right. <laughs> Bloomberg says that early stage discussions have begun. Uh, this comes as China shows us some signs of slowing down its crackdown on big tech. The K-Web China uh, Internet ETF is currently on pace for its best month since June of 2020. The journal hit a, just a really unbelievable piece on uh, this is tough for tech. They, they're going back a whole decade. The, the tech has been dominant, and that dominance is at least being questioned. We'll see uh, whether it actually uh, turns into something even worse than it's been. It's still salvageable. Tech, we, we all count on tech, don't we? What else is it going to be? It's not going to be... What leads the way? It's not going to be the Rust Belt, um, but it's 
Uh, it's been tough, at least for the stocks. But ARK Invest taking advantage of it. Kathy Wood has been buying the dip on Tesla, adding shares to her various funds. That stock is off more than 40% from its all-time high. And Wood says she's added at least 50,000 shares of the EV maker over the past two weeks to her flagship innovation fund, uh, Autonomous Technology and Robotics Fund, uh, and Next Generation Internet Fund. You'd think she'd have to. If she liked it at much higher prices, she has to like it here or say, oops, never mind, the whole thesis is off. Um, if, she can raise, be, if she has cash and can put it That works work. for anything, doesn't it? We're, we're, I'm, I, now I'm following Target just because I, I you know, we're, I think that was up yesterday, wasn't it? In a down market, uh, 156.70. It actually closed. If you liked it at, uh, you know, at 270, why not like it at 145? What's is it changing? Unless the picture has changed that drastically, and that's what people are trying to figure out right now. The FTC chair Lena Kahn here in Washington saying the agency is considering new rules that would restrict the use of non-compete clauses. She said they hurt lower wage workers and can stifle competition for talent. Non-compete agreements typically bar employees from joining a competitor for a period of time after they quit. They've long been associated with higher paid salaried employees, but companies have increasingly been trying to use them as a condition for hire for hourly workers. Now, companies that use them argue the clauses protect intellectual property and other investments by preventing employees from sharing them with a new employer. What do you think? Phenomenal. Phenomenal uh, take on things uh, for Lena. Totally transformed my whole uh, impression of her. It's a great idea. You're for, you're for getting rid of non-competes. Duh. Why is that? <laughs> I'm joking. In case any of work with me, Andrew, in case any of us ever decided to oh. you want to wait a year. But, Really, you couldn't. You didn't think of. You didn't think of. You didn't think about that when I you read this. I would have thought, as, it, as the great free marketeer that you oh, are, that okay. you would think this is a terrible piece of regulation. See, I was actually having fun and making a joke. To, you know, I was having uh, fun and making a joke. So that that was my take. So I understand why look, that. I think it is a good idea. Work. If you look at things like I, I, I know hairdressers in the area, the hair salons will say, as soon as you walk in the door, you got to sign this non-compete. You can't compete within 25 miles of us for the rest of your life. And those things seem really unfair. That's that's not yeah, good. yeah. Listen to Becky. No, I, I, I've I've seen it play out in a way where you can understand this. It's not just like big contracts for some of these things. There are, there are huge swaths of of the population of the working population that get caught up in things like this. It's very unfair. It's like you can't work here unless you sign this. The Competition time you walk is in. good. We shouldn't have non-competition. And it is Get a, rid it of is those clauses. It is a free market. It is a free market. It lets competition. Free market. Right. right, but the free the free market should say, I think, that if you're a hairdresser and you're going to come and you want to work at this this store, I could offer you two two prices. I can offer you a high price, in which case you can't take any any people with you. They're not offering or I can a high you price. A lower price. They're not offering a price. And it's not just saying you can't take anybody with you. It's like saying you can't even compete yourself against some of these things. I don't know. It's, it allows competition. I'm, I'm more in favor of it. I had someone here. I had someone here immediately send it to me. The first thing I saw this morning was, wow, maybe she's not so bad. Because we, everybody immediately felt this, <laughs> the same thing about Lena. Coming up on Squawk Pod, the latest development in the Musk Twitter saga. What's on the table for the Twitter board right now with former chair of the Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai. There is a point at which the board is going to have to be concerned that, you know, there's only so much we can do to try to preserve the original terms of the merger agreement. The time value is almost as significant as the stock price itself. Best case scenario for Musk, best case scenario for Twitter, and the best case for shareholders all after this. At Morgan Stanley. 
old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin in Washington this morning, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan back at the NASDAQ in New York's Times Square. Let's talk a little bit about the Elon Musk Twitter saga because it rolls on. Twitter now reportedly planning to offer Elon Musk access to a treasure trove of raw data on hundreds of millions of daily tweets. Now, according to multiple reports, the move is an effort to try to push the $44 billion take private deal past the finish line and tamp down concerns of rampant bot activity on the platform. Lawyers involved in the deal would not confirm the data sharing agreement and no comment from Musk just yet. Now, Twitter shares, they're down nearly 20 percent since accepting Musk's offer. So we're at about 40, uh, 30 right now. I don't know if I would provide the bot numbers or not. It's, it's not clear he has to legally or he when I say he to that Twitter has to legally. And the question is, is he your partner at this point, or is he, is he your adversary? Which is to say, you're going to look through these, these numbers. We've talked about how he shouldn't, I, we don't believe he has any right to it. He's already said, I, I'm, I'm not doing any diligence. I'm past that. Now he wants this data. I am imagining the only thing he can possibly do with this data is try to somehow use it against you. But I think the, what they gave him was not just here are the bot numbers. I think they gave him access to a stream of tweets. Um, lots and lots and lots and lots of tweets, kind of that fire hose defense that lawyers sometimes take. Okay, you want some information? Here you go. <sighs> Deal with it. Try and figure it out. Uh, it, the, their question has to be, is he going to agree to the NDA, uh, the non-disclosure agreement, to, and say that he's not going to give any of this information away to anybody else because that seems suspect. He tweets about a lot of this stuff. But, hey, here it is. If you can figure it out, if you've got better way of an, a better algorithm of trying to figure out how many of these are bots, go ahead. Have I, I, Joe Lonsdale convinced me. I, I don't know. He didn't convince you, I guess, uh, Andrew. But he said that they, there was data that Elon Musk relied upon that now is false. And therefore, of course, he's going to. Well, they was in the it was in the SEC filing. You can argue both sides of this. It was in the SEC filings that they believe. I learned things from guests. I, I don't just. But but did did he not? Uh, Joe Lonsdale make, did, didn't even make a dent on you, Andrew, at all. All, all he, of his he points did, that he, he made he, to you. No, well, I mean, I, I have a great respect for Joe Lonsdale, and I, well, I, but, he makes me think about a, a lot of but, things. I hear a big butt coming. Oh, we shouldn't talk in about this, big butts. In this regard, I, I was not persuaded only because— You've never been if, persuaded. If I've never seen you persuaded on anything. You let me know when true. you finally are persuaded on something. If you look at the language, both the language that, the, that Twitter has published publicly around bots and this ratio— um, it's a different. It's, I think what's going to what you're going to find is 
that ratio will prove to be accurate. But what Elon Musk is saying about bots running the place and that there's all sorts of uh, things going on, that will also prove to be accurate. But it's not going to therefore discount what, what I believe was publicly stated. So what's going to finally view, happen? Uh, he doesn't do it or he does it for... Does it 30, for cheaper? $30 billion. Does it for cheaper? I don't what, think there's an option. Price? What's a good price? I don't think there's an option. $30 billion? What, what, what's it worth? Well, so the, que- the question is, if you're the board of Twitter, what's, a, what's the right price? Which is to say, would you wait two years to get your $44 billion and then discount that by the time it's going to take, the mess it's going to create, and also whatever legal fees you want to add on top of that? But, but the, board, that, uh, your, the board's only other option is to walk away from it, and I don't even think it would be supported right, at $40.30 no, at that. So, What's the so low? You, so you either, that, you either take you the $44 see. billion and suffer for two years through this fight if you think you're going to win the fight, and then you also have to try to account for the risk that somehow you lose. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think one. they have a choice. So right. whatever math you're going to do is going to be basically a discount to that, but what is that discount? You have, it's, it's not what's the thing worth. I mean, we've had all sorts of venture capitalists and other people tell you it's worth no, half but, of what he's paying. Yeah, but, but if where it board, was before it he started, where it was before we even thought Elon Musk was going to do that. Go back to that price. What was it? 30 something. 30%, 30% less. Things even got, it's even, the business looks even worse than, than what that totally. was implying so let's now. Say it's worth so what, 50%. where would it go now if he was gone completely? Down in the 20s? Down in the oh. 20s? I think it would be in the 20s easily, yeah. That's why neither side is going to give on this. It is going to take probably years in litigation to get through it. Oh, so no, I think the Twitter board does give. The question gives is and how does much what? do It says, give? okay, we'll, we'll negotiate down. Oh, absolutely, because if, would you, would you it, well, it depends how much you, we're talking about. That's what I'm saying. If it's $5 billion less, I think you take that and you run for the hills. If it's... $20 billion less, I think you say, you know what, I'm going to hold you to this, right? I mean, I think, and I don't know where that math it's comes just out. Once you, once you blink, then there's no going back, right? Once you say, okay, maybe it's worth less, you can't say, oh, never mind, it's not, you've got to stick to the price. That's the tricky. He kind of blinked when they accepted not really. 44. I think that you, no, I think you negotiate. You could say, we, we're prepared to talk to you. If you come up with the right price or a price that we're, we're willing to accept, we do that. If not, We'll go to court and we'll we'll see you in court and we'll take the 44 billion. I think that's how this goes. Could be. Joining us right now is Ajit Pai. He's the former FCC chairman. He's a partner at Searchlight Capital Partners and a non-resident fellow of the American Enterprise Institute. Good morning to you. You think this is game changing? Well, I think it's certainly a significant step by the Twitter management and uh, assume acting on the behest of the board to give Elon Musk more information to stave off two, I think, of the material risks the board is worried about. Number one, the risk of a renegotiation of the price. And number two, the risk of litigation in Delaware Chancery Court over the merger agreement. When you look at this, this merger agreement, one of the things that everyone's been so fascinated by is that Elon Musk effectively waived diligence. And so, and early on, we should also say that he said one of the reasons he was buying Twitter was because he thought it had a bot problem. If you were going to litigate this case, do you think that Twitter's board has the better side of it right now or Elon Musk? Well, I think for starters, you put your finger on one of the things that has been very perplexing to many observers. They call it due diligence for a reason, because presumably a lot of people who are spending money to buy a company want to know every nook and cranny of the business. But going beyond that, 
The question becomes, now that there is a merger agreement, what are the grounds for Musk to potentially walk away from the deal? And there are essentially two of them. One of them that has been covered a lot in previous weeks has been misrepresentation or a representation that has a material adverse effect on the company. But the newer one, and I think the reason why Twitter is handing over this raw data about the 500 million daily tweets that come out is the covenant breach. One of the things that Twitter said is that we will provide you all information that you need to understand essentially the core of the business. And the recent letter that the Twitter that Musk's lawyer sent to Twitter and filed with the SEC suggests there might be a breach of the covenant because Musk has been asking for this information for almost a month now, and they haven't handed it over. So that's part of the reason why Twitter has made this gesture uh, to try to stave off any argument that Twitter has breached its covenant of providing information to the buyer. But even then, remember, this is not the entire denominator, so to speak, of Twitter users. Twitter's business is based on monetizable daily active users. And that base includes not just the people who tweet every day, but a great number of accounts who don't tweet or are essentially silent. Additionally, Twitter does some internal analytics in terms of analyzing who some of these people follow and who they don't. That feeds into the determination of whether or not they are bots or not. And so I suspect that this is a you know, very important step forward in terms of Twitter giving information and Musk getting information. But it's certainly not the end of the conversation in terms of the quantum of information that Musk is presumably going to want in order to ascertain you know, the extent of the bots on the platform. Do you believe, and, and maybe it's hard to know, whether Twitter has been honest in its accounting of this bot problem relative to what Elon Musk is saying, which is he believes they've been dishonest, dishonest to the level at which he's either encouraged or somehow um, we now have the AG in, in Texas uh, leading its own investigation into this matter, which I imagine would potentially help Elon Musk if, in fact, he were trying to pull out or renegotiate this transaction. I, I certainly think it's tempting to speculate on one side or the other. I mean, a lot of people whose anecdotal uh, experience on the platform suggests that there's a decent amount of bot activity would lead you in one direction. On the other hand, Twitter has represented for a while now, well before Musk was considering buying the platform, that bot activity was basically around 5%, and they've disclosed that for a number of years. And so yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what testing Musk does with the firehose, as it's called, of the 500 million tweets, and beyond that, any analytics that Twitter might disclose about the overall Twitter user base. I think it's uh, one of those things that we just can't know, and I'm hesitant to ascribe bad faith as a motive in the absence of that kind of evidence. Ajit, it, one of the questions is, as a negotiation, um, whether if you're the board of Twitter, you try to hold his feet to the fire to pay the full $44 billion, he will say, I'm going to walk, or I'm going to try to renegotiate this deal, and you say, I'm going to, I'm going to go to final, I'll go to court, or do you take a discount to that? and say, you know what, I'll take, I don't know, $5 billion less, $10 billion less. I mean, I don't know what you think the company is either worth uh, without Elon Musk's bid there or what the proper discount rate should be for the time value of money, the, the risk, the nuance, uh, the nuisance, if you will, and of all of that. How, how would you do that equation in your mind? If I were a Twitter board member, the way I would be thinking about it is basically along the following framework. You know, the stock recently closed a little bit about above forty dollars, a twenty-five percent discount from the fifty-four twenty that Musk is offering. And so, as a board member, I think my priorities are twofold in this order. Number one, again, to avoid the risk of renegotiation, you want to stick to as close to the terms of the merger agreement, including the fifty-four twenty, as you can. Now, obviously, the bigger that gap gets between the agreed price and the stock price 
the bigger the risk is that Musk will find a reason uh, you know, to try to renegotiate. Uh, so you're barring that, you know, if you know that the secondary priority is to avoid the risk of litigation in Delaware Chancery Court, which governs, again, this merger agreement, you want to avoid the chance that even if you win in court, it's going to be two years from now, three years from now, and you've sort of destroyed a lot of shareholder value. So I think the calculation for the board member has to be, if there is going to be a renegotiation, we should only flip to that priority at the moment when we think we can still capture some significant value for shareholders. You know, is that 4520 or 4420, we don't, I don't know. Uh, but there is a point at which the board is going to have to be concerned that, you know, there's only so much we can do to try to preserve the original terms of the merger agreement. The time value is almost as significant as the stock price itself. And so that's part of the complex equation a board member would have, I would think, at this point. Ajit, that, that sounds so complex from the board member's perspective. Is there any way to prevent lawsuits from happening on every angle of this, no matter what happens at this point? This just... I mean, this is kind of mind-boggling to think of all the different things at play here. It's certainly full employment for merger and agreement lawyers, no question about it. But I think from a company perspective, one of the things that is important for them to think about is, you know, what is the end game here? I mean, I think the end game for them has to be, from at least it's governed by the board again, to make sure that we stick as close as we can to the terms of the merger agreement. So if I were them, you know, obviously giving uh, must be access to the fire hose is one thing, but in a sense, that's only the first step. Again, there's a lot of other stuff under the hood, so to speak, that they could disclose. And presumably the parties are governed by an NDA. And if I were them, I would say, look, let's just skip to the end game now, provide all kinds of information, whatever you want to be able to test whether or not this 5% bot estimation is accurate. If it is accurate, or if it's, you know, maybe a percent or two off, then we don't have a material adverse effect there's no reason to say there's a misrepresentation here. And if there is a big problem, well, that's sort of a material risk to the entire business going forward anyway. And you probably presumably would want to know that and disclose it to all the shareholders. And so, uh, you know, to me at least, I think uh, from a business perspective, I would want to resolve the uncertainty about this sooner rather than later. I mean, I, we don't want to be into the late summer and fall trying to figure out whether or not this merger is going to go forward. And the FTC has already cleared it. One of, the, one of the things that's so fascinating is if you if you took Elon Musk at his word and he was going to be your quote unquote partner, that would be one thing. The other question is whether he's really your adversary at this point and whether any data that you provide to him is going to be effectively used one way or the other to try to find an out in this transaction. That's what you have to imagine is, is happening here. Um, it's sort of hard not to think that that's what's going on. And even if he signs an NDA, or any other kind of agreement, it's also clear, just reflective of recent past history, that it's not it, it that it it's not clear, I should say, that he's going to stick to it. And then your remedy becomes even more complicated because there's nothing you're going to be able to get from him for that. It's very, very complicated. There's no question that uh, there seems to be, based on public reporting, sort of a cultural dissimilarity between uh, the way Twitter has operated and the way Musk wants to transform. And he's been very clear that he wants to bring a different approach to that. And so I think, uh, oddly enough, even though, as you said, they are linked by this merger agreement, uh, in, in terms of finding that fit over the coming weeks and months, and certainly once the transaction is consummated, it's going to be a pretty challenging uh, transaction to, to, to consummate successfully. And so uh, that's one of the things I think that everybody's got to be thinking about. Okay. Ajit, it's great to see you. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Cheese will be next. Still to come on Squawk Pod, we're continuing our journey through the U.S. regulatory framework. Next stop, the SEC's plans to protect Robin Hoodie traders with former SEC chair Jay Clayton. 
Are we looking at payment for order flow in terms of whether it enhances execution quality for retail investors across the marketplace, or are we applying some other criteria like we don't like gamification? Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. We're back with more Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC Live. Well, we're live from a couple of places, from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kern along with Becky Quick. Senator Sorkin uh, right now is down in, God, that's got a ring, Sorkin. It's even alliterative uh, and everything. We need to take a single shot of you because that is the most beautiful structure. I mean, it just really is. Uh, It is. And everybody looks good. Uh, next to it, and everybody, and, and, and important, and serious, uh, and everything else. You could not, I said, Andrew's got the jacket again today. You could not not have the jacket. You couldn't. You just can't. Not with that. When you're standing at the Capitol. No, you can't. Think it would ruin, ruin the formality of it all. Exactly. Uh, exactly. You are set, which, uh, unfortunately, I tend to do from time to time uh, of the show itself. The SEC yesterday releasing a new plan that would transform the way stocks are traded on Wall Street. Plan targets payment for order flow where brokers are paid by wholesale market makers for orders. Joining us right now to break it all down and discuss what happens next. Jay Clayton, former SEC chair and a CNBC contributor. Good morning to you, Jay. I know there's an issue we've talked a lot about. Gary Gensler coming out quite publicly now, really for the first time taking aim at payment for order flow in a meaningful way. The question is, what happens next? And do you think payment for order flow effectively goes away? And should it go away? Hey, Andrew. Um, look, payment for order flow is is just one component of retail interaction with a very complex trading ecosystem. And let me just let me just try to break down retail versus institutional. In our trading system, we've got all sorts of institutional traders. We have all sorts of venues, lit exchanges, dark pools. And we have intermediaries like wholesalers. That interaction among institutional investors, to my view of how to look at this, creates what I would say is a sort of ceiling on execution costs across the marketplace. Generally, retail investors, the way our market structure works, have been able to come in under that ceiling in terms of execution quality and cost. There have been amazing advances in retail access to our marketplace. Now, I agree with Chair Gensler that we need to continue to look at that in terms of overall effectiveness, that ceiling. Are we continuing to bring it down with technology, data, information, and the like, resilience, and fairness? Okay, Payment for order flow is just one component of that, and I think we need to look at it in those terms. And that's the debate you're seeing. 
But go ahead. Jay, I guess the question, though, is payment for order flow effectively has allowed the Robin Hoods of the world to offer free trading or what feels like free trading. And instead of you paying an upfront fee for every trade, they're taking a couple pennies potentially on each trade because you're not getting what might be described as the best possible execution. It's effectively just transferring the, the payment, if you will, uh, via that mechanism as opposed to upfront. The question is, if you would take the payment for order flow piece out of it, do you believe that it changes the model for all of these companies, these brokerages, and changes it in a way that makes less people involved in the market? And is that a good or bad thing? Really, really good question, Andrew. Um, the, the question here is um, execution quality or something else? Do, are we looking at payment for order flow in terms of whether it enhances execution quality for retail investors across the marketplace? Or are we applying some other criteria, like we don't like gamification, payment for order flow enhances gamification, therefore we need to, to look at it more closely. Or payment for order flow allows for zero commission trading, which brings more people into the marketplace. So you need to separate the efficiency, the delivery of low cost trading to retail investors from some of those other policy questions. And we need to look at addressing those other policy questions. Greater access for individuals, or is there, is there too much of an incentive? Are people too um, uh, juiced to trade? We need to look at those, not just in terms of you know, order type, but other information in the marketplace that helps people make better choices. I think you need to separate those two and be very rigorous in your analysis. And, and what does your analysis say about that? Meaning, what would you, if you were advising Gary Gensler right now or the SEC or Congress, what would you be telling them? I'd do exactly what you're doing. Put the issue out there. Now let's get, and we've done this in the past in this very complex ecosystem, let's get people around the table to discuss this with that rigor. Let's not decide what's good or bad. And I think Gary Chair Gensler's done a very good job of outlining six things yesterday that need to be looked at. This was just one of them. Let's, before we make any proposals, before we make any judgments, get people around the table to discuss exactly what you and I were just discussing. Okay, but let me ask you this. If you're an investor today, public investor in Robinhood, for example, or you're a customer of Robinhood, but do it as an investor, would you be telling them this is an existential threat that has a high degree of likelihood of effectively killing this business, or at least this business model as it's known today? Or would you say, you know what? I've lived in Washington long enough. I've been around the hoop. This isn't really going to happen. Look, you know that I'm an optimist and you know that I believe in this country. One of the great things about this country is we do have due process and open debate around these types of issues. Regulation is almost always an existential threat to businesses. That's why we do these things in an open and deliberative way. And I, I believe that in an open and deliberative way, um, people will be able to make a choice about the type of business model that they select. Hey, Jay, can I just throw you a random curveball? I know it's something we have not, I know you were not planned to come on about this, but we were just talking about Elon Musk before you got on earlier in the hour. And I have one very, just, you're, you're a great counselor, so you'll have a, a, a view on this. If, if Elon Musk effectively said, I, uh, basically said, I don't, I'm, giving up, I'm waiving all diligence on this deal. Does it matter what kinds of representations were made by Twitter? Andrew, I, I am not versed in every bit of the contract, but there is a difference between waiving your process around due diligence 
and covenants, uh, you know, covenants made in a contract to provide information going forward. I think I, I actually have uh, very little critique. I, I was able to uh, to listen in. I have very little critique in the way that uh, you, Becky, and Joe outlined where we are, which is, you know, is there going to be a negotiation here over price as a result of the, the bot question? Jay Clayton, thank you, Counselor. It's nice to see you thank this morning. You. Appreciate your perspective Great. on all of it. Good to see you, Andrew. You bet. We appreciate that he watches the entire show. We do. Yes. yes. Mandatory. Mandatory. Thank you, though. That's the podcast for today. See, regulation can be fun. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.